0: Greetings, and welcome to the podcast. In the last episode, we came to understand David Hume's deep doubts about what knowledge claims we humans can legitimately make. In his work, An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, he writes All the objects of human reason or inquiry may naturally be divided into two kinds, to wit, relations of ideas and matters of fact. Of the first kind are the sciences of geometry, algebra, and arithmetic and in short, every affirmation which is either intuitively or demonstratively certain. That the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the square of two sides is a proposition which expresses a relation between these figures. That three times five is equal to the half of thirty expresses a relation between these numbers. Propositions of this kind are discoverable by the mere operation of thought without dependence on what is anywhere existent in the universe. Though there never were a circle or triangle in nature, the truths demonstrated by Euclid would forever retain their certainty and evidence. Matters of fact, which are the second objects of human reason, are not ascertained in the same manner, nor is our evidence of their truth however great of a like nature with the foregoing. The contrary of every matter of fact is still possible, because it can never imply a contradiction, and is conceived by the mind with the same facility and distinctness as if ever so conformable to reality. That the sun will not rise tomorrow is no less intelligible a proposition and implies no more contradiction than the affirmation that it will rise. We should in vain, therefore, attempt to demonstrate its falsehood. Were it demonstratively false, it would imply a contradiction and could never be distinctly conceived by the mind. Unquote. Regarding the matter of understanding, Hume puts it succinctly, quote, If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, Does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Now is probably the best time to let Kant tell us in his own words about the impact Hume's conclusions had on him. Now, from his writings in the Critique, we're used to Kant being often difficult to understand, but I think you'll find the clarity of his writings in Prolegomena to be quite refreshing. In the introduction, he writes, Since the essays of Locke and Leibniz, or rather since the origin of metaphysics so far as we know its history, nothing has ever happened which was more decisive to its fate than the attack made upon it by David Hume. He threw no light on this species of knowledge, but he certainly struck a spark from which light might have been obtained. Had it caught some inflammable substance and had its smoldering fire been carefully nursed and developed, Hume started from a single but important concept in metaphysics, viz that of cause and effect, including its derivatives, force and action, etc. He challenges reason, which pretends to have given birth to this idea from herself, to answer him by what right she thinks anything to be so constituted that if the thing be posited, something else must also necessarily be posited, for this is the meaning of the concept of cause. He demonstrated irrefutably that it was perfectly impossible for reason to think a priori and by means of concepts a combination involving necessity. We cannot at all see why, in consequence of the existence of one thing, another must necessarily exist, or how the concept of such a combination can arise a priori. Hence he inferred that reason was altogether deluded with reference to this concept, which she erroneously considered as one of her children, whereas in reality it was nothing but a bastard of imagination impregnated by experience, which subsumed certain representations under the law of association, and mistook the subjective necessity of habit for an objective necessity arising from insight. Hence he inferred that reason had no power to think such combinations, even generally, because her concepts would then be purely fictitious, and all her pretended a priori cognitions nothing but common experiences marked with the false stamp. In plain language there is not and cannot be any such thing as metaphysics at all. Unquote. Good stuff. It would have been really something if Hume had been alive long enough to read this himself. Anyway, Kant continues, However hasty and mistaken Hume's conclusion may appear, it was at least founded upon investigation, and this investigation deserved the concentrated attention of the brighter spirits of his day, as well as determined efforts on their part to discover, if possible, a happier solution of the problem in the sense proposed by him, all of which would have speedily resulted in a complete reform of the science. But Hume suffered the usual misfortune of metaphysicians, of not being understood. It is positively painful to see how utterly his opponents, Reed, Oswald, Beattie, and lastly Priestley, missed the point of the problem. For while they were ever taking for granted that which he doubted, and demonstrating with zeal and often with impudence that which he never thought of doubting, they so misconstrued his valuable suggestion that everything remained in its old condition as if nothing had happened. The question was not whether the concept of cause was right, useful, and even indispensable for our knowledge of nature, for this Hume had never doubted, but whether that concept could be thought by reason a priori, and consequently whether it possessed an inner truth, independent of all experience, implying a wider application than merely to the objects of experience. This was Hume's problem. It was a question concerning the concept's origin, not concerning the indispensable need of the concept. Were the former decided, the conditions of the use and the sphere of its valid application would have been determined as a matter of course. Kant here defends Hume against the so-called common-sense philosophers who famously attacked Hume in his time. Continuing, But to satisfy the conditions of the problem, the opponents of the great thinker should have penetrated very deeply into the nature of reason so far as it is concerned with pure thinking, They found a more convenient method of being defiant without any insight, viz. the appeal to common sense. It is indeed a great gift of God to possess right, or as they now call it, plain common sense. But this common sense must be shown practically by well-considered and reasonable thoughts and words, not by appealing to it as an oracle, when no rational justification can be advanced. To appeal to common sense, when insight and science fail, and no sooner... This is one of the subtle discoveries of modern times, by means of which the most superficial ranter can safely enter the list with the most thorough thinker and hold his own. But as long as a particle of insight remains, no one would think of having recourse to this subterfuge. For what is it but an appeal to the opinion of the multitude, of whose applause the philosopher is ashamed while the popular charlatan glorifies and confides in it? I should think that Hugh might fairly have laid as much claim to common sense as Beattie and in addition to critical reason, such as the latter did not possess, which keeps common sense in check and prevents it from speculating, or, if speculations are under discussion, restrains the desire to decide because it cannot satisfy itself concerning its own arguments. By this means alone can common sense remain sound. Chisels and hammers may suffice to work a piece of wood, but for steel engraving we require an engraver's needle. Thus common sense and speculative understanding are each useful in their own way, the former in judgments which apply immediately to experience, the latter when we judge universally from mere concepts, as in metaphysics, where sound common sense, so-called in spite of the inapplicability of the word, has no right to judge at all. I openly confess, the suggestion of David Hume was the very thing which many years ago first interrupted my dogmatic slumber and gave my investigations in the field of speculative philosophy quite a new direction. I was far from following him in the conclusions at which he arrived by regarding, not the whole of his problem, but a part which by itself can give us no information. If we start from a well-founded but undeveloped thought which another has bequeathed to us, we may well hope by continued reflection to advance farther than the acute man, to whom we owe the first spark of light. I therefore first tried whether Hume's objection could not be put into a general form, and soon found that the concept of the connection of cause and effect was by no means the only idea by which the understanding thinks the connection of things a priori, but rather that metaphysics consists altogether of such connections. I sought to ascertain their number, and when I had satisfactorily succeeded in this by starting from a single principle, I proceeded to the deduction of these concepts, which I was now certain were not deduced from experience, as Hume had apprehended, but sprang from the pure understanding. This deduction, which seemed impossible to my acute predecessor, which had never even occurred to anyone else, though no one had hesitated to use the concepts without investigating the basis of their objective validity, was the most difficult task ever undertaken in the service of metaphysics. And the worst was that metaphysics, such as it then existed, could not assist me in the least, because this deduction alone can render metaphysics possible. But as soon as I had succeeded in solving Hume's problem, not merely in a particular case, but with respect to the whole faculty of pure reason, I could proceed safely, though slowly, to determine the whole sphere of pure reason completely and from general principles, in its circumference as well as in its contents. This was required for metaphysics in order to construct its system according to a reliable plan." But I fear that the execution of Hume's problem in its widest extent, viz. my critique of the pure reason, will fare as the problem itself fared when first proposed. It will be misjudged because it is misunderstood, and misunderstood because men choose to skim through the book, and not to think through it. A disagreeable task because the work is dry, obscure, opposed to all ordinary notions, and moreover long-winded. I confess, however, I did not expect to hear from philosophers complaints of want of popularity, entertainment, and facility, when the existence of a highly prized and indispensable cognition is at stake, which cannot be established otherwise than by the strictest rules of methodic precision. Popularity may follow, but is inadmissible at the beginning. Yet as regards a certain obscurity arising partly from the diffuseness of the plan, owing to which the principal points of the investigation are easily lost sight of, the complaint is just, and I intend to remove it by the present prolegomena. Unquote. For those who've complained that Kant's writing in the critique is unnecessarily difficult, he sympathizes, yet offers no apology. And no apology need be given. We see here in the above passage from Kant's prolegomena that he is more than capable of writing with the clarity necessary for mass appeal. Comparing his own writings in the critique with Hume's writings, he says, Quote, However, the long-windedness of the work, so far as it depends on the subject, and not the exposition, its consequent unavoidable dryness and its scholastic precision are qualities which can only benefit the science, though they may discredit the book. Few writers are gifted with the subtlety and at the same time with the grace of David Hume, or with the depth as well as the elegance of Moses Mendelssohn. Yet I flatter myself I might have made my own exposition popular had my object been merely to sketch out a plan and leave its completion to others instead of having my heart in the welfare of the science to which I had devoted myself so long. In truth, it required no little constancy, and even self-denial, to postpone the sweets of an immediate success to the prospect of a slower but more lasting reputation. Lastly, regarding his attempts to save metaphysics from the attack Hume made upon it, Kant writes, We've been long accustomed to seeing antiquated knowledge produced as new by taking it out of its former context and reducing it to a system in a new suit of any fancy pattern under new titles. Most readers will set out by expecting nothing else from the critique. These prolegomena may persuade a reader that metaphysics is a perfectly new science, of which no one has ever even thought, the very idea of which was unknown and for which nothing hitherto accomplished can be of the smallest use, except it be the suggestion of Hume's doubts. Yet even he did not suspect such a formal science, but ran his ship ashore for safety's sake, landing on skepticism, there to let it lie and rot, whereas my object is rather to give it a pilot, who, by means of safe astronomical principles drawn from a knowledge of the globe and provided with a complete chart and compass, may steer the ship safely whither he goes. So what is Kant's answer to what he considers the problem of Humean skepticism? To get an idea of it, and bear in mind that there isn't universal agreement on what his answer exactly is, let alone whether or not it solves the problem as he conceives it, we should take a deeper look at his transcendental idealism. First, though, it might prove useful to think a little bit about animal behavior. Imagine it's a late summer afternoon. An orb-weaver spider repairs parts of a web attached between two tall bush branches bathed in the last remaining rays of the day's sunlight. A child watches closely, her father a few steps away. Her brothers are taking turns chasing each other out on the open grass. One of them had stopped by a few minutes earlier, looked at the spider, shuddered, and threatened to smash it with a rock. I'll smash you, she had said, and he took off running again. Her work complete, the spider settles once again in the center of the web, and a cold shiver touches the child's spine as she considers just how seemingly complex the behavior of the scary-looking creature is. Something else touches her, perhaps for the first time. She is in awe. How does an orb-weaver spider know how and where to build its webs? What guides its behavior? Does it know anything at all? Is there even a hint of consciousness inside of her, or is all of her behavior purely programming? When studying animal behavior, we take a black-box approach and study as a whole the animal in question and its surrounding environment along with other animals it may or may not come into contact with. What goes on inside the black box remains largely unexplained. We do know that the greater the complexity of the neural system of an animal, the greater the need for social learning. Instinct plays a limited role. A newborn child will surely never survive on instinct alone and will need looking after for years before he is capable of surviving on his own. For spiders, however, it seems instinct plays the greater role. They're ready to go, out of the box, as it were. We humans have no memory of what it's like to be a newborn or a toddler. Most of us can remember to some degree what it was like to be, say, five years old, but what it's like to be a newborn or a toddler can only be understood by us through observation. What was it like for you, for me? What is it like to be an orb-weaver-spider spinning a web for the first time? Observing another human being, we see that person interact with his or her environment in such a way that we get a sense of their being knowledge contained within From our own experience, we have a sense of knowing things, so it's easy to project this onto others. Watch someone grab a set of ingredients from their kitchen pantry, open a recipe book, follow the instructions given and combine all of those ingredients to make a meal, and you infer that they are conscious of the world as you are, and that they too are capable of knowing it. The representations of the world another person carries in her head are unobservable to you, and the objects in the world that they observe and interact with are only understood through these representations. It would be interesting to imagine a being that could put objects directly into its mind and know them that way, but for us, the best we can get into our minds are representations of the objects. Our psychology is such that we don't take it that when objects are presented to us in intuitions through sensibility that our consciousness has somehow created them. We take these objects to actually be outside of us. We take in cues through the senses and we form concepts of objects through the understanding. In short, we can never come to know an undetermined object immediately, but only immediately via the senses. So again, as just mentioned, we take the appearance of an object in our mind as being in immediate relation to something outside us. Furthermore, we take the appearance to be the thing in itself, meaning the thing as it would be even without our being conscious of it. Kant calls this view transcendental realism and says that it is the, deceptive although common presupposition of the absolute reality of appearances, unquote. Opposed to transcendental realism, Kant advocates the view of what he calls transcendental idealism. He describes it in the following passage from the Critique, "...by transcendental idealism of all appearances, I mean the doctrinal system whereby we regard them, one and all, as mere presentations, and not as things in themselves, and according to which space and time are only sensible forms of our intuition, but not determinations given on their own or conditions of objects taken as things in themselves." This idealism is opposed to transcendental realism, which regards both time and space as something given in itself, independently of our sensibility. Hence the transcendental realist conceives outer appearances, if their actuality is granted, as things in themselves that exist independently of us and of our sensibility, and that would therefore be outside us even according to pure concepts of the understanding. Unquote. Now, we have to be careful not to take Kant as saying that objects that manifest as appearances in our mind don't correspond to objects external to us. He's saying that we can only know appearances, and it's wrong to assume that the objects of our appearances exist in the way that we perceive them, independently of our minds. In short, whatever objects there are outside of us, they may causally affect us, but we don't cognize them as they are in themselves. We cognize them according to our sensibility." Of course, many have raised the objection that if we can't cognize things in themselves and we only know appearances which are inside us, how can we say anything at all about an external world? Again, we can consider the observation of another human interacting with the world and we can infer that inside her head there are representations and that these representations are influencing her interactions with things outside of her. But we might then be hit with the notion that our observations of a person we take to be outside us are actually representations within us. If you're familiar with solipsism, then you can see how we might find ourselves stuck here if we demand a proof against it. If you're not familiar with solipsism, simply put, the idea is that only one's own mind is sure to exist. Kant was not a solipsist. Recall that David Hume says our concept of space as something infinite and infinitely divisible is an abstraction from experience. It's likely he wouldn't have taken issue with Kant's notion that in order to represent two objects in some configuration, with a distance between them, there has to be an a priori representation of space underlying all appearances in the first place. However, one would have to guess that Hume understood that newborn infants only have a crude representation of space, and that only over time, with experience, do people come to have the sense of space that they do. And one would also have to guess that Kant wouldn't have had a problem admitting that. Of course, this is just speculation. But if valid, it would seem that Kant and Hume would agree on the general idea that we do have a limited a priori representation of space that develops through experience. And in the same way, Hume says that our minds are the source of the idea of necessary connection between causes and effects; It just needs developing through experience. Looking at it that way, it's reasonable to think that Hume would have been fine saying that some a priori condition exists in the mind that makes cause and effect associations possible. Kant absolutely thinks so. In the same way he thinks space is a necessary a priori condition for experience, so too is some primitive rule of organization that directs mental activity to impose a principle of causality on the phenomena of experience. Such a priori concepts, however, according to Kant's transcendental idealism, are not applicable to things in themselves, so as long as Hume doesn't take appearances for things in themselves, it's hard to see where he and Kant would be in disagreement." In the end, it just seems like Kant wanted to go deeper than Hume and explore the nature of the inner workings of the mind. However, he admits that part of our mind is off-limits, it belongs in the realm of the noumena, the unknowable things in themselves, and that our awareness of phenomena belongs to what he called the empirical self. I'll leave you this episode with a quote from the critique regarding the divide between the empirical self and the transcendental self. Can the I who thinks be distinct from the I that intuits itself? And yet be the same as it, by being the same subject? And hence, how can I say, I, as intelligence and thinking subject, cognize myself as an object that is thought, viz., I so cognize myself in so far as in addition I am also given to myself in intuition, except that I cognize myself, as I do other phenomena, not as I am to the understanding, but as I appear to myself? This question involves neither more nor less difficulty than does the question as to how I can be an object to myself at all, viz. an object of intuition and inner perceptions. If concerning the determinations of the outer senses we grant that we cognize objects through them only in so far as we are outwardly affected, then we must also concede concerning inner sense that we intuit ourselves through it only as we are inwardly affected by ourselves. We must concede that, as far as inner intuition is concerned, Our own self as subject is cognized by us only as appearance, but not in terms of what it is in itself. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.